You're listening to Endeavor Against Extremism, brought to you by The Clarion Project. I'm your host, Shireen Kadosi. I've always felt that the power of stories could never be underestimated. Stories are, are the most human thing about us, and if we can understand our crises at this point, using a framework of stories and narratives by speaking to real people, by understanding the real conversations that really should be happening at this hour that aren't always brought to you, then we can perhaps endeavor to understand our world today and our place in it, as well as learn the skills to build the world that we want so that we don't have to go the route of other groups of people who have felt that in times of extreme stress and duress, the only way to survive was to become more extreme. It's either we live under a nation of rule of law and that, that it's equal justice before the law, or we devolve into arbitrary force and mob rule. And so the challenge is, is that, that we have the mechanisms in place under the law to address tragedies or outrageous police action and violence. And in this case, the officer in question was very shortly after the incident arrested and charged with a crime. And so justice is being carried out. And even if the officer hadn't been arrested, it's still not appropriate under the rule of law for people to riot and and damage property and threaten the lives of their fellow citizens. And for mayors and governors to not just allow it, but to encourage it, goes beyond abdicating their oath of office and their highest uh, responsibility as government officials to protect people's lives and property and to enforce the law. But it, it, it goes into the territory of, uh, frankly, of subversion. Mm. Would you say would you say the vacuum that's created has led to subversion, and, and how would you forecast sort of where we're going at this rate? Well, so I think it's important to understand the context of what we're seeing, that these riots are not occurring in a vacuum. Mm. And in my estimation, it's the round two or, or plan B of a failed coup attempt. So as a U.S. Army Special Forces soldier, I'm trained in insurgency. So Army Green Berets are experts in conducting insurgencies. We call it unconventional warfare. So overthrowing governments by, with, and through an indigenous resistance movement. So when I see the attempt to to subvert a, a presidential campaign and to destroy President or candidate Trump, and then to destroy his transition and then his presidency using extra legal means, which the president himself has described as a coup, I start looking at these things in terms of, you know, how do you steal political power? Mm. How do you unjustly and unlawfully take political power? And so the coup attempt failed, and now they have Marxist insurgents, self-proclaimed Marxists, like the leaders of BLM, you know, who've, who've described themselves as trained Marxists, who are now the shock troop and foot soldiers, you know, largely funded by uh, George Soros, I'd imagine, um, and and working very much in, in collusion with uh, Democrat so-called leaders at the state, local, and, and federal level. So it, it's all very clear to me exactly what's happening. Would you say that it's a correct statement that law enforcement has become the number one target in this insurgent movement? Uh, I don't think that that's correct. I think that's a tactic that they're using, but the, the target is President Trump. The target mm -hmm. is political power. So, so defunding the police is just one step toward causing chaos, causing economic harm, 
um, similarly to these to the to the lockdowns that are now reoccurring uh, with with COVID. Mm-hmm. So because the governors can't have it both ways, and the mayors can't have it both ways, where they encourage rioting and looting and mass gathering of people if it fits a certain political narrative that essentially is designed to regain them political power. And then out of the other side of their mouth say, oh, no, you can't gather. We have to lock everything down. So to me, it's all part and parcel of attacking the economy, attacking uh, the rule of law, causing fear amongst people so that, uh, that they can regain political power. Ultimately, I think it's going to backfire against them. But I think they're, they're that desperate to, to regain power that they're willing to do uh, anything and everything that they can to, to do so. And unfortunately, law enforcement is in the crosshairs in that process, which just makes yeah. it all the more, uh, you know, really just terrible and tragic. Yeah, I think part of that is is the element of the ideolog- ideological war. And if you could speak to that on um, on a specific note, and that is mm-hmm. what I what I see is that there's sort of seven key characteristics uh, or seven key values that a society has that really sort of holds a society together. What I'm noticing is that the the right so to speak just to really bluntly uh divide the the ideas the right has um a value for sanctity and authority sovereignty whereas the left tends to sort of lean towards care and community would you say that their the sort of insurgent movement is focusing on the ideological aspect of uh the value system and and if they are how do you reconcile this idea that we have one rule of law when one, the narrative and the history is literally being rewritten and rescripted, even through something like the 1619 Project, not that I want to necessarily get into that, Mm -hmm. but two, also that you've got this idea that we don't even have necessarily the same shared laws or the same shared rules of laws right now. We have a very different sort of scope between one aspect of community and another aspect of community in terms of, you know, what, what is the the hierarchy of uh, determining uh, a code. Yeah, so in my estimation, it is simply about power. Mm. Marxism is about power. They'll use flowery rhetoric about equality and fairness uh, as they pave the road toward, toward ultimately toward tyranny and to their own power. And in general, revolutionary movements are, are dangerous in the sense that they always tend to be more and more extreme and to eat their own much like the, the Jacobins during the French Revolution. And we're seeing that today with you know, Marxists and leftists calling for um, you know, turning on their own, whether it's the mayor of Minneapolis or Nancy Pelosi. So I, I think that they use lang- the language of, of fairness and justice and care, which snickers in a lot of people. But ultimately, they're playing out of the Saul Alinsky playbook. And what we're seeing with the, the destruction of our historical icons and, and these statues and uh, the broader cancel culture is very much out of the Marxist playbook. I mean, look at Chairman Mao and his cultural revolution in China and the disastrous policies that led to the death of tens of millions of people there. And similar things occurred in Stalinist Russia and, and in other communist or proto-communist states. And uh, you, have to, you have to erase the past. You have to unmoor a people from their institutions mm-hmm. in order to subvert the, the society and, and gain that ultimate political power. I love that phrase, and more people from their institutions. Well, and this is this this is the natural logical culmination of fifty years of Marxism in the U.S. It's the the self-described long march through the institutions. They knew they couldn't do this fifty years ago. 
that they, they had to infiltrate, you know, with the new left in the 60s and getting into our education system and the so-called elite universities and Hollywood and the media and much of the political class. And, and they've done it very effectively over a long, long time. And now they see it as their last gasp to, to regain power before President Trump wins again. And they're, they're stepping on the gas. Is there any truth to the idea that we need police reform, given that how much money is given to police departments with minimal training required to become a law enforcement officer? I think it's incredibly difficult, the, the challenges that officers face. I can't imagine having to, to, to face the ambiguity and the constraints uh, and, and, and the, the challenge to their, to their lives and, and livelihood that, that they face on a daily basis and having to maintain uh, the constraints as opposed to being you know, a special operator or an infantry soldier in a wartime environment with, with much different rules of engagement, as they clearly should be for policing a domestic populace. And I, I think striving for increased training and always continuing to improve in, in policy and, and technique and tactics is something that law enforcement here and around the world should always strive for uh, over time. But I, I would venture to say that American law enforcement is you know, by and large um, lawful and those exceptions to, to that are, are prosecuted under the law much more often than they are not. And they have a really difficult and dangerous job. And I think ultimately by self-policing communities and adhering to you know traditional values of family and faith and character and virtue that our people can put themselves in situations where they don't end up having those dangerous and tragically deadly confrontations with law enforcement. There's a trend right now, as I'm sure you've noticed, that these values of family, faith, uh, tradition are aspects of white supremacy or white culture and they need to be done away with how do you how do you speak to people who believe that how can you use those how can you use that language when people hear those words and it's it's sort of a dog whistle for them uh for white supremacist power yeah i feel very sorry for those people that have been tricked into buying that narrative uh, i i doubt very much that the the folks in the movement that are that are spewing that from the top actually believe that. I think they're using it in a very calculated way as a tool to regain power for themselves and, and their co-conspirators in, in this Marxist ideology. Uh, but no doubt there are folks of, of good faith that somehow have fallen into that trap. And it's it's shocking to those of us that, that do have a bit of a grasp on on how fortunate we are to live in a society under the rule of law with, with these types of institutions of you know, quality under the law and free market capitalism and um, uh, representative democracy and you know, republic, constitutional republic. And I think it's only folks that are very poorly educated and that have not had a chance to see how much of the rest of the world lives that could fall for something so patently absurd and frankly dangerous. Mm. But uh, unfortunately, there are many of our, our countrymen that, that that simply are that poorly educated that, that don't have much of a grasp of history either domestically as far as you know American civics uh, Western civilization um, or or the the murderous evil that's occurred under under lawless and tyrannical regimes throughout time is the solution then greater education the solution is leadership and the solution is a, is an American renaissance mm. we need a, an American rebirth of first principles of the pursuit of virtue for its own sake and the good and the true and the beautiful and 
we have to look at what education is. I mean, the word education means to lead forth. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes to lead forth to what? And do we want to have an education that's devoid of any morality, simply technical in nature to create economic widgets of or units of, of maximum value? Or do we want to teach a man what he needs to know to be free and what he needs to know to live a good life? And so our, our problems are, are systemic and fundamental and structural at this point because we've ceded so much intellectual and, and moral territory to, frankly, the enemies of freedom over these last decades. And I, I think that's a, a factor of you know, most folks that are constitutionally, their own personal constitution, you know, conservatively minded, tend to focus on, on faith, family, their friends, and, and building a life for, for their kids, uh, tending their own garden, and while, while the ideologues of, of the Marxist left uh, conduct their long march through our institutions. So it's time for us to wake up and realize that uh, we are in the midst of an ideological civil war, and we have to understand our principles, believe in them, and articulate them, because we live in the best society that's ever existed anywhere, ever, objectively. And uh, if we don't believe that it's worth fighting for and dying for, then, uh, then we don't deserve it. The component you bring up right now about this American Renaissance idea, this pursuit of virtue, and then you define it as stepping away from this idea of reducing people to the component. It's, it's very fascinating. It's not something I hear because typically the left will attack the, the idea of America through this idea that people are you know, part of the capitalist system, people are machines and uh, products in the machine. But when you, but the way you speak about it actually speaks to the Newtonian Cartesian idea that, you know, uh, to step away from that, the, uh, step away from the idea that we are not sort of these, these cogs in the wheel. If you could speak to your background a little bit or how you want people to sort of learn more about you. Sure, sure. So uh, I have a bachelor's in political science from Yale. Uh, survived that, fortunately, with, uh, you know, most of my brain intact. Um, then uh, I... I was in the private sector in uh, medical device sales, and then I enlisted at age 29 in the Army to become a Green Beret, and was fortunate to make it through the, the training, and I'm um, an Arabic speaker, and deployed to the Middle East um, in support of uh, operations to, uh, to support our allies and defeat our enemies in, in the region, and then uh, also was, uh, was in the... Uh, in the intelligence community as well in the Middle East. And then I got a master's degree in, in um, international affairs from the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UCSD. And then the last couple of years, I've been in uh, defense technology. So a variety of you know, cutting edge technologies and uh, you know, marketing and selling those to the federal government. Can I ask you a question? Why did you go from Yale to the Army at 29? Typically people don't enlist that late. Yeah, so I, I wanted to get a commission. Well, uh, yeah, I wanted to get a commission coming right out of Yale and found out that I couldn't get my brand, my job guaranteed, essentially, like your, you know, my branch assignment, and I could have gotten stuck as like a supply officer or something non-combatant. Mm -hmm. So I decided not to do it, and I always felt this sort of a grading, you know, sort of guilt and <laughs> that, that uh, I wasn't serving my country in a time of war. And so finally, at age 29, it was it was a fisher cut bait, so to speak. Um, so I went all in and, and enlisted because that was the only way I'd get a guaranteed shot to at least try out to be a special operator. What would be um, on a closing note? What would be your message to Americans who've who've never sort of been to other parts of the world? I find my conversations with ex special forces 
soldiers is really fascinating. They describe a different reality between the wor world that they lived in and the land that they now call home, which doesn't really feel like the country that they ever fought for to begin with. And there's a sort of um, disconnect between reality, between so soldiers such as yourself who have served versus the average American quote-unquote marshmallow who's never really done anything. So. If you if you could speak to a room full of people, you know what is the one thing they you wish that they would know about your experiences in other parts of the world and, and life as it is versus what we have here. I would say that unless they educate themselves about how fortunate they are to live in this country and and learn why it's worth fighting for, that their children will probably not live free. Because anything else is just so outside of their frame of reference, yeah. right? So I think something like that would hopefully, if not shock them, at least nudge them uh, you know, vigorously to, to realize the stakes that, that we're facing. And it, I think Reagan said it, we're only ever one generation away from losing our freedom. You think they understand freedom, considering that they've never understood to be without freedom? No, I don't. And, and I, I, I feel like I barely understand freedom, because it's, it's inherent to me as an American. Mm -hmm. And even though I, I my former in-laws were from Lithuania and they told stories about when the Soviets came in and seized their country and, and my, my former mother-in-law was born in a Soviet war camp and they had no rights. I mean, even with their neighbors that they lived next to for 10 years, they wouldn't feel comfortable having the discussion you and I are having right now yeah. about policy and politics because the spies were everywhere and secret police and you get a knock on your door in the middle of the night and drag your family away. I mean, they had kids turning in their parents. So, so we really can't fathom what it's like to live in a fear society, as mm. Natan, Natan Sharansky calls it in uh, his book, The Case for Democracy. It's totally alien to us. So um, it's, it's tough for us to appreciate, appreciate our freedoms. So we, we're looking to have, especially in the time of COVID, really focused webinars. We really think about them very, very thoroughly. That's the one credit that I will give to Claren is that it's a very thoughtful, methodological mm -hmm. organization that deeply thinks about what we're creating. And so the webinars we've created so far, there have been two, and they cater to sort of the, the the wider audience that's really kind of wondering, like, what's going on. The last one we had was with Andrew McCarthy on the question of oh, how great. do you designate, and I can send you a link to that after. I'm a big fan of Andrew McCarthy. Oh, I actually met him at a Horowitz Freedom Center event probably 15 years ago. Oh, my God. He's, and, uh, he's incredible. Hey, yeah, he's a sharp, sharp cookie for sure. And, and, very, and very dignified. I mean, he's really sort of, mm -hmm. even when he dissents, he has a sort of air of dignity towards how he approaches that dissent. And so we had him on the question of Antifa, and it was really fascinating because it didn't just address do you, do you designate or do you not designate. You know, we try to dig deeper, like you mm -hmm. saw in some of these questions here, is how do these different sort of moving parts intersect and connect, and also how do we sort of make sense of what we're dealing with? And, right. and also, as an organization, we look at the broad spectrum of extremism. So initially, mm -hmm. we started out in focusing on just the Islamist sort of extremism, and now we look at Antifa, neo-Nazis, white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And of course, as we predicted in uh, summer of 2019, was that identity politics was the gateway drug to radicalization, and we're seeing mm -hmm. exactly that manifest right now. So the entire sort of American landscape is is really sort of on this fast track towards radicalization. and. At this time, we're trying to look at how does that happen? You know, how do we understand this? How do we talk about this? And how do we sort of really move forward? Right. Well, a couple of things on that. Like, first, I read Andrew's uh, piece in National Review on the Antifa designation as a terrorist group, which I thought was really interesting because he basically said it doesn't matter because it really only applies to foreign organizations, mm -hmm. um, is, at least is what I took away from it. So I, I always appreciate his, his perspective on sort of the, the, the truth behind the scenes on a lot of these things that are oftentimes optics. 
Um, and then to the other point about the radicalization and kind of where it's going to go from a, an institutional perspective as far as counterinsurgent doctrine, what Antifa and their overlords, if you will, are, uh, are trying to do is they're, they're trying to precipitate a heavy-handed response from the government that they can capture on video, uh, preferably of black Americans, I'm sure, being killed in the streets by either federalized National Guards or active duty troops. And so it's a trap that they have set for, for President Trump. Because that's the insurgent playbook, right? Because when you're weak and you can't take on a government con with conventional arms, it's essentially it's a psychological war at that point with yeah. the, the, the people being the terrain, not the, uh, the physical terrain being as important as in a conventional war. So, so that's the playbook. And that's exactly why he has not unilaterally federalized National Guard or sent an active duty. He's, he's put the ball back in the court of the governors and said, call for the guard. We're here to help you, but you have to ask for it. And the reason he's done that is so that that way they can't play that card against them. So it's, it, it, there's a lot more going on here than people realize if you look at it through the proper lens, which is one of, of insurgency and counterinsurgency. So it's very interesting. And, and, and as an aside, Trump has the, the best man for the job as his uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, who's a, a Green Beret himself. So he knows the playbook and he'll be advising the president well, I'm sure. What would you do differently if you were advising the president? Do differently than what we're doing now? Yeah. That's tough to say because as a civilian without any special access to classified information, at least as it pertains to, to this movement, I mean, I, I do have a clearance, but it's used for defense technology, so it's uh, you know, outside the scope of my access. It's, it's really tough to say in that regard. I think a lot of people, at least anecdotally that I've talked to uh, or spoken to, are, are frustrated that there's this feeling that the left has all this momentum and all this power, mm -hmm. which in my estimation is totally artificial. It's, it's a factor of the, of the reality that they control the media mouthpieces, uh, the vast majority of them, to a lesser extent than they did in the past, but still to a large extent, and uh, similarly with, with their power in social media. So I, I think that they purposely craft this perception that conservatives and traditional Americans and patriots are alone and so that, that it taps into the natural human desire to be part of the in-group and part of the pack and being fearful of, of being shamed or being left out because that's a, a mortal sin in a, in a tribal context, which is, of course, you know, our, our, our DNA. So they're, they're essentially running a PSYOP on the American people with the, the mainstream media being the mouthpiece of this insurgent movement. Heather McDonald wrote the book, um, War on Cops. Would you say that there is a war on cops? I know you touched on it a little bit, but I'll give you a, a chance to sort of add to it if you'd like. Yeah, so I, I think that ties into my last statement. So in, in analyzing something like that, I'd want to see the empirical data as opposed to the, the perception. But of course, power is perception. Um, Virgil wrote about that in the Indian. He said they were powerful because they were believed to be powerful. And that's exactly what this movement's trying to do is to use their, their megaphones and their media to, to create that perception. So I think that, that people probably feel that there's more of a war on, the, on police than there is. But that in and of itself is dangerous. And uh, clearly we have to do everything we can to stand with our law enforcement, to give them the, the funding, the training, and the respect that, that they need and deserve to, to do their job of keeping our community safe.